The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 27 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 20th of February, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I have the honor of speaking with an aviator and a colonel in the United States Army. We discuss his progression and the choices that he has navigated on his journey in aviation and his service to our country. We take a look at how his choices have carved a path filled with opportunity that will allow him to keep soaring among the blue skies ahead. Stay with us to hear more about this soldier's journey on this episode of Squawk Ident. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show and thank you for listening to the Squawk Ident podcast. I've been producing the show now for a little over four months and I am grateful to be able to take this time to express how very thankful I am for all of your listenership and support. As the show has grown, I've been able to sit down with some amazing people that have shared their journey with us. This episode of Squawk Ident is absolutely no exception. I recently had the privilege to speak with an individual that I have known for quite some time now. I have a tremendous amount of respect for him and his judgment. Here now is the audio from an interview I conducted with this individual a few days ago while on a layover in Honolulu. I hope you enjoy it. His journey started out at the age of 16, where a high school guidance counselor suggested that he try out for a program that would reward the top student in his class to earn a discovery flight in a Cessna 172. It is of no surprise that he earned that achievement and thus kicked off his journey in aviation. He continued his education by attending Wagner University, 
where he earned his undergrad degree in business while in the ROTC program. After graduation, he became a commissioned officer in the United States Army, where he was selected to become an Apache helicopter pilot. Upon completion of his active duty period, he moved to Arizona, where he attended a fixed-wing flight school at the Phoenix Deer Valley Airport, formerly known as Pan Am International Flight Academy. Upon completion of that program, he found employment as a ferry pilot for an aircraft sales broker in the valley. Now, for those of you who don't understand what a ferry pilot is, I'll take a moment now to explain. So, an aircraft broker brokers aircraft sales to prospective buyers, and they hire pilots to go and pick up the aircraft, ensure logbooks are in order, and the aircraft is safe to fly. They then fly that aircraft from the seller to the buyer or to the buyer's uh, maintenance facility where they go and check out the aircraft. And that is what he did for quite some time. Well, after canvassing the local flight schools around the Phoenix area, one day he stumbled into a flight center we both had in common, Tailwind Flight Center at Chandler Airport. After a brief time as a CFI, he received a call from Piedmont Regional Airlines to interview with them. After spending some time as a de Havilland-8 pilot, he sought out an opportunity to fly for another airline, ExpressJet. There, he earned a type rating in the Embraer 145. It was not long after that he was able to find a reserve unit where he was stationed to fly the C-12, an aircraft in the civilian world known as the King Air 200. He was soon after deployed to the Middle East. Upon his return, he was stationed in North Carolina, where he was able to be assigned to the UC-35 squadron, which is the civilian equivalent of the Citation 500. Upon another completion of deployment, he returned to find himself a UC-35 jet instructor for the U.S. Army. He soon became a Black Hawk battalion commander at Fort Knox and is currently a C-12 instructor in Alabama, where he is working on his second master's degree in strategic studies from the U.S. Air Force Air War College. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Colonel Terry Schooler. Well, Terry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. So, Terry, you and I have... uh, been online talking to each other for many years. A um, couple times we've even been able to get together while I was on a layover somewhere. Uh, and you've come out and you've always been very gracious in uh, in spending the time to talk to me and 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 uh, share your stories and you know talk about airplanes and all the things that you know, us aviators like to do when we hang out and drink a beer, right? That's right. <laughs> so, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule uh, to sit down with us here at Squawk Ident is an absolute uh, privilege, and I thank you for that. So, you know, what I really wanted to start out with uh, with you is how you got started. I mean, we all have that moment, that very, you know, that first flight, that first, you know, drive to the airport, you know, you know Something happened in everybody's journey. What happened in your journey? What was your moment? So, so I would say there were a lot of little things, you know, as I was a kid. I mean, 
what what kid growing up in the 80s didn't watch top gun and want to be a fighter pilot right um but uh you know it was one of those pie in the sky kind of things at that point in time what uh i think what really kind of got the hook into me was um i was 16 years old i think and uh and my high school guidance counselor I threw this flyer in front of my face and said, Hey, I think you might be interested in this. Go check it out. So, um, it was a, a flyer for, uh, something called an aviation career education Academy. It was run by, uh, two U S airways pilots out of Philadelphia. And, uh, they, uh, they put on this, I, I believe it was a two week kind of a day camp kind of thing during the summer. And you'd go in the morning and you'd learn about every aspect of the aviation industry from the maintenance side to uh, to the flying side to uh, I remember we got to go into the uh, the tower and the uh, approach control facility at McGuire Air Force Base, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, So we got to see, you know, all aspects of it, got to learn. all, all, all about aviation and, and the different sides of it. And um, at the end of the uh, two weeks, they uh, they had this prize, and the prize was for the top students uh, a discovery flight, a one-hour discovery flight. So um, I was fortunate enough to be one of the top two students, and. Uh, Got to go out to uh, Flying W Airport in, uh, I think it was Lumberton, New Jersey, and uh, get in the Cessna 172 and fly over to Northeast Philadelphia Airport, and uh, and that was it. That's that's uh, kind of what uh, what got me hooked. You remember that flight uh, specifically, or just kind of in general, or? Um. I- I don't remember everything about it because, uh, you know, that was that was the first time I was in a, a, an airplane that size. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I remember some things about the flight, but uh, uh, definitely remember uh, the end and, and coming into land and being, whoa, this is this is crazy. But uh, but it was so cool. Uh, I just remember walking away from that flight uh going wow this is this is awesome i really want to keep doing this so and that you said you were 16 yeah i think i was 16 at the time yeah so how long uh between at 16 taking your first flight before you decided okay i might take some training how many years passed well so um i did not I did not actually get in a small airplane again for for many years, um, but uh, you know I went to college, uh, you know graduated high school and and went to college uh, just outside of Philadelphia, and uh, I went on a four year ROTC scholarship, mm-hmm. and you know the the thought was you know I'll, I'll go into the army if I can be a pilot I'm going to try to be a pilot. Obviously, you know, the, the, the Air Force is probably the service you want to go to if, uh, if you want to be a pilot. But, uh, you know, the Army's got aviation as well. And uh, so I thought I would give that a shot. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough my junior year to get selected to, uh, 
to go be an army aviator and uh and then uh once i graduated college uh and and reported for flight school at fort rucker alabama um i uh i learned how to fly helicopters so so between you know between flights in in smaller aircraft uh was probably i guess you know feels longer but it was probably about six years so that seed that was planted uh, by, you know, just a recommendation from a guidance counselor in high school. I mean, that's pretty rare to hear, uh, especially nowadays, uh, a young person, you know, actually even seeing a, guide in, a guidance counselor in a high school setting. Uh, and then that's planted a seed, had, you know, and, and through the ROTC program and through your, your university education, decided that, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into the U.S. Army, and, and if I can become a pilot— Great. How did that transition go? That because I've heard stories from fellow aviators in the cockpit, and they tell me how they, you know, they were trying to go one direction, and they ended up, you know, it's the U.S. government. You know, you go in a different direction, and you just have to kind of be okay with it. Did that transition work really smoothly for you, or how did that work? Um. So so going, I guess going back to to high school. You know, I, I mentioned that. I mentioned the Air Force, and I, I thought that I was trying to get into the Air Force and yeah. uh, and go down that road and become a pilot. Um, and then uh, I think it was also during my junior year that uh, I was sitting in a class one day, and and the words on the page started getting a little blurry. And uh, and it, and that lasted for a few days. So you know, told my mom. We went to the eye doctor. I walked out with a pair of glasses. Mm. So that kind of for me, that kind of crushed the uh, the thought of going to the Air Force because at that time, you know, it was twenty twenty vision, perfect health, um, and if you didn't have that, you weren't going to fly. So, um, once uh, once that happened, you know, that's when I kind of shifted focus to the Army. Knowing, yeah, so so I'm an Army brat, uh, meaning that uh, my dad uh, served. Uh, he served twenty seven and a half years. Uh, before he retired, and uh, so I went into the to Army ROTC knowing that I could end up doing something else, but I still wanted to see if I could pursue flying. And you know, I wore those glasses for about a year until the eye doctor determined I didn't need them anymore. So, but at that point, it was too late to to try to shift back to the Air Force. So mm. I continued down the path of the Army, and. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I was fully aware that I might not get the chance to fly. Um, and, and, you know, that's okay because that's not, that's not why you sign up to be a, a, an officer in the United States Army. Um, right, right. You, know, you sign up to be an officer in order to, to lead, uh, lead troops. Um, if you do get the opportunity to fly, that's just icing on the cake and, and, Luckily for me, I like icing, and they uh, they let me have it. So <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. And so did did you get to pick your equipment? Uh, how did that transition? So um, I did. Uh, they actually uh, about I guess it was at, at that point in time, and the whole process has changed as we're talking uh, years ago, um, but. Uh, at that point in time, you could, uh, you you would make your request. You'd make your request for for the 
type of aircraft you wanted to fly, and then you'd make your request for the the location where you wanted to be stationed. And uh, so I requested uh, top of my list was was the Apache because my thought process in my in my youth was, hey, if I'm going to go fly an aircraft and somebody's going to be shooting at me, I want to shoot back. So, <laughs> there you go. Um, that is uh, that's what led me to to choose the Apache. So uh, about halfway through flight school, um, they uh, they doled out the uh, the aircraft assignments, and I got I got my first choice. So I got to fly the Apache. Nice. And how, and I remember, you know, were you ever deployed on that very first commission, or did, were you just training and stayed in the states? No, I uh, so so after flight school, I uh, I reported to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, for the uh, the hundred first Airborne Division, mm-hmm. and uh, that was in uh, April of two thousand that I got there. Um, the unit was in the middle of uh, or, or just getting ready to start actually the conversion from the A model Apache to the Delta model Apache Longo Longbow. And, uh, so we went away for, um, eight months as a unit to learn how to fly the, uh, the longbow as a unit. And, uh, and then, uh, once, uh, we got back, uh, actually while we were gone is when nine 11 happened. Uh-huh. And so they kind of rushed us through the program. Uh, one of our sister units uh, deployed to Afghanistan shortly after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when we got back, um, of course, everything, uh, all the talk was about Iraq and going that way. So we, uh, in February of 2003, we started loading up our stuff in preparation to head to the Middle East. And, uh, of course, in March 2003, the war kicked off. We were, we were sitting in Kuwait when the war kicked off. Um, it, was, uh, it was another unit that, uh, that left first and kind of led the charge, but we were right behind them. So, yeah, yeah I, I spent uh, three months deployed that first time um, and uh, got orders to, uh, to leave the deployment and come back to the States uh, to, uh, to move on to another assignment. So mm-hmm. at that point in time, you know, there, there was no, there was no real clarity on, on what was going on. Like w- when we first got to, to Kuwait, they were telling us we'd be home by September and the war would be over and all would be hunky dory. And, you know, right. <laughs> that, uh, everyone knows that that is not how it happened, but, uh, um, so they weren't sure how they were going to manage their people and they were letting, they let, they let people first. They said, "People, you can't leave." And then they would let some people go. And then they said, "You can't leave." And then let go. And so I kind of got caught in one of those. Hey, you got orders, go. Right. So. Okay. So you ended up coming back to the states, and you continued to fly the Apache at that point, or how did that transition to you uh, going fixed wing after that? So I, I came back. I came back from Iraq. Iraq in uh, about June of 2003 uh, to go to uh, another of the so the military has a school basically every time you get promoted you got to go to school for however many months 
So I, I left Fort Campbell and went to back to Fort Rucker, Alabama, went to school for six months and then uh, uh, left Fort Rucker and went out to Fort Hood, Texas, where I joined up with a uh, new Apache unit that was getting ready to go do the same thing that I had done with the first unit, go through and, and transition from the A model to the D model Apache. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, I was there with that unit for about a year and a half before I, I, uh, I left active duty. I see. So you left active duty and decided, you know, I'm going to move to Arizona. What sparked that transition? How the heck did you pick the, one of the hottest places in the continental U.S.? So um, I, while I was in Texas, um, actually even before I got to Texas, uh, while I was in Alabama, I had started uh, working on my um, private pilot uh, I guess you'd call it an add-on rating. I already had a commercial helicopter rating at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I started working on my, my private pilot rating for single-engine airplanes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got that in Alabama. And then when I moved to Texas, I continued with the instrument rating uh, in airplanes. Um, so uh, while I was in Texas that time, um, you know, I, I was I was leaning towards getting out of the military um and uh you know the the airline the thought of of going to the uh to the airlines was was starting to appeal to me uh quite a bit so um i i started you know researching how i might accomplish that goal at that point while i was still on active duty and uh so then i, I went to my commander and told him hey sir you know i i I want to get out. I want to leave active duty. Uh, I want to go be an airline pilot. And uh, I, I actually credit him quite a bit because he forced me to go do a significant amount of research. Uh, his, his comment back to me was, okay, I'll support you, but you, you need to come to me with a plan. So um, I researched uh, a whole bunch of schools um, and financing options and you know, tried to figure out how I was going to actually accomplish this goal. I put quite a bit of research into it, and I went back to him with a plan. And he said, "Okay, I'll sign your paperwork." So, um, you know, I credit him with with helping me to develop the plan uh, on how I was actually going to achieve that goal. Um, so, originally, my plan was to. Uh, go to at that point in time pan am had two campuses they had the campus in uh, phoenix and they had the campus in uh, fort pierce florida mm-hmm. so my thought was with my wife being from alabama we, we'd go to the campus in florida that way we wouldn't be too far from from family sure um and about three months before i left active duty <laughs> i get a phone call yeah and the phone call is from it's from Pan Am. I'm like, hey, you know, everything okay with my application, my deposit, you know, all that stuff. And they're like, yeah, everything's great, except we're closing the Florida campus. So it's not uh, there anymore. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll give you your deposit back if you'd like. Yeah. Um, or you know, you can come out to Phoenix and fly with us out here. Yeah. What was the name of that hurricane? And, uh, Do you remember? I'm sorry. Do you remember the name of the hurricane that took out all the airplanes there at the campus? Oh no! I was. I remember that, that. I was actually at Pan I, I Am in Deer Valley 
during the hurricane and just graduating. And uh, okay. they they said, you know, we told you they had a big meeting. All the students came in. The, all the chief pilots and instructors were there. And like, I know we told you that if you graduate and you don't have any major hangups that, you know, you'll immediately be uh, offered a position to be a flight instructor here. Uh, unfortunately, Hurricane whatever uh, just took out our campus in Florida. And all of those people who are actively flight instructors are given the opportunity to be a flight instructor here in Phoenix. So we're going to have a lot of people move out and be with us. And uh, the airplanes are going to be ferried out to this campus. We're going to only have one campus in the United States. And that was the time when you were actually getting ready to go to the Florida campus. And that's why they decided to close that campus is because the damage was just too much and a couple years earlier they had damage not quite as significant but from another hurricane so their insurance company said listen your insurance rates are going to go through the roof if you want to continue to do business here or you know you can close and 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 go just consolidate into one campus and that's exactly right. exactly what happened with the Pan Am International Flight Academy so that's why I ended up at Tailwind because I didn't want to wait four, five, six months for a phone call to say, uh, okay, we, we can offer you a flight instructor position now that you've graduated. Uh, and when I asked them, well, what am I supposed to do between now and then? Uh, I remember the chief pilot looked at me and said, well, I know Home Depot's hiring. That's a good temporary job. And I, <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I don't think so. So I, I was uh, uh, you know, talking to the designated examiner that I used for probably three or four of my ratings. And he said, listen, there's a school down here in Chandler, Arizona, and it's a good, good school. It's uh, they've got uh, their own set of instructors there. It's growing. It was just purchased from these guys called uh, they would call them T1 and T2 because they're both named Tom, and you know they're they're good businessmen. Uh, so it's it's going to be a good thing. Why don't you go apply? And that's how I ended up there. Um, and then at right around that time, which I think was around 2005, you started attending the Phoenix campus of Pan Am Flight Academy. Is that correct? I did. I did. Uh, I got there in, uh, we, we got there in July of 2005 yeah. and I started, I started training shortly after that. Um, so I, I looked it up real quick, the, the hurricanes. So 2004, Florida was struck by four hurricanes, Charlie, Francis, Ivan, and Gene. And, uh, and that is what, uh, what pushed Pan Am over the edge. That's it. <laughs> yeah, and, and rightfully so, because Florida is the number one state in the union uh, to uh, have the most flight instructing flight training going on and Arizona comes in at number two and it's simply because of the weather you know you've got good weather you know almost year-round you don't have to worry about winter operations or you know extreme weather usually Florida obviously had hurricanes and whatnot but and thunderstorms but most of that was minor in comparison to how much beautiful time there was to fly and Arizona came in uh, right there now Arizona I believe is the busiest general aviation state if I'm not mistaken, I, I think it is. Uh, I, I know Florida is not far behind. Yeah. Uh, if if they are behind, but uh, yeah, it's. I, I know you know I, I've done quite a bit of flying uh, throughout Florida, and it is always busy, always. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so so I get to to Tailwind, or I'm sorry, I get to Pan Am in July of 2005, and uh, and start my training there. And uh, you know, the first first thing about Arizona, you know, we we get to Arizona in the summer, and we're trying to move into it. My wife and I are trying to move into an apartment, <laughs> and it's you know 110 degrees right. in the shade. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> So, so that was an adventure, but, um, so, uh, I started, started training there in July of 2005 and then, uh, you know, just worked through the ratings. I I know that I was, I was there for maybe two months with my first instructor. Um, and then he got an interview and, uh, and left pretty quickly. And, uh, he is now at Delta. Um, and yeah. then, uh, I started with another instructor and, uh, he actually was able to take me through the rest of, uh, the rest of my time there, um, before he got hired. I th- he went to Express Jet first and I think now he's at United. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think, I think all that, uh, I, I say all that just to say that, that Pan Am you know, turned out a really good product. Um, you know, you paid for it. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the cheapest place to get your flight training, but, um, it was certainly a, a very good product, uh, that, that, uh, or a very good school that produced a, a tremendous amount of, of fantastic aviators. So, um, most aviators, I think that go to Pan Am or a school like it, where it's a vocational school, not a, not a college, uh, program, uh, but it's a vocational school. You come in with what you have. You don't have to have a college degree. But this was a different time, uh, and now it it just behooves any applicant to to be going to a, a program where you can get an aviation sciences degree commensurate with your aviation studies. Simply because then you can apply for a restricted ATP and get a job and start in, having an income a lot earlier uh, than having to to work through your fifteen hundred hours somehow. Um, however. Uh, this was a time uh, where you mentioned that uh, you know even the flight instructors were getting calls. Uh, the hiring started up again with uh, regional airlines, and you had uh, quite a bit of an advantage as well because you were coming into this. Uh, you had a couple ratings, fixed wing ratings already, but you have this tremendous background, both education wise and uh, with your time in the in the military with the helicopter training so you were kind of used to this whole fire hose mentality we kind of talk about this quite a bit here um you know you got to study you know fire hose mentality meaning you're getting so much information and you're expected to retain it um and not just you know memorize it rotely because when you're in the airplane and all of a sudden something happens you're not going to go oh let me look that up it's uh i know it's in this book somewhere i mean you gotta you gotta refer to it immediately um, did you right. feel that the training that you, I know you, you said that you, you thought it was a good product there at Pan Am and I agree it was a very good product. Uh, it was very high paced, um, training environment, but what was like probably the biggest challenge for you at that moment in your life? Uh, you hear you were already experienced, so you had a little bit of a leg up, but did you still find the challenges that difficult or did, were you able to kind of just work through it relatively easily? Um, I, I would say that the the knowledge part, the 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 book knowledge part of it, um, 
was, uh, I mean, it it was certainly uh, a robust curriculum, and uh, there there was a lot to learn. I mean, you know, you know what they say about aviation: you you never stop learning. Um, so so there was definitely a lot to learn. Um, I, I I think that the uh, the training that I got in the army, going through flight school, had prepared me. Um, not necessarily for the knowledge, but had prepared me in uh, study habits. Um, I, I felt like I was, I was maybe a little bit older than than a lot of the students at Pan Am. Not much, just a couple of years. But you know, having had some of that life experience before, I think that helped. But you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I didn't learn how to study in college. I, I learned how to study when I when I went to Army flight school. Yeah. Um, just. It was it was so intense, just the the amount of stuff that you had to to study every day. I mean, it truly was a fire hose. So um, I, I I do feel like by the time I got to Pan Am, I I had a I had a leg up, um, yeah. just in in you know understanding how that process worked. Um, you know, for for me as far as the the flying part of things. You know, uh, I'd, I'd gotten used to being in airplanes, um, you know, working on ratings while I was still on active duty. And uh, and so that part of it wasn't too bad. There, there, you know, everybody's got some maneuvers that they struggle with. And, and sure. I was no exception to that rule. But uh, but o- overall, I think, you know, the, the training in the military uh, was uh, it effectively prepared me for for going through Pan Am. Yeah. And you got through it. You got through it relatively uh, quickly as well. Um, it wasn't long after you were able to finish that program and start looking for work out there to build your hours. And you were telling me you were having a little bit of a hard time at first. What, how did that transition go from here? You're graduated. Here's your Here's our blessing. You're a CFI, double IMEI. You went through your, did you do the jet program as well at Pan Am? I, I did. Yeah. I did. So, so I, I did the, I did that program. Um, I, I had actually already started putting out applications um, while I was, while I was time building at Pan Am. So I hadn't started my, my CFI MEI, I I hadn't started any of that yet. Uh, And I'd already started putting out applications because I had gotten some, some information that uh, some of the airlines, some of the regional airlines were looking at helicopter time very favorably. Mm -hmm. Um, And and at that point in time, so I left active duty with 600 hours of helicopter time. And I had probably about 200 hours of airplane time. Uh And, uh, and so I was. Uh, I actually applied with ASA, Atlantic Southeast Airlines, mm-hmm. um, and uh, I remember I hit submit on the application. It was on the computer, uh, and it was Sunday night. The next day, I started class for my MEI, and while I was in class, I got a phone call from Atlanta area code. And so I excused myself from class and I, I picked up the phone and it was their hiring manager. <laughs> and I had, I had 96 hours of multi-engine time. He told me, go get your four hours, call me back. Wow. So 
I, I had a decision to make. I'm like, I just started my MEI. You know what? I'll get that four hours as I, uh, you know, by the time I complete my MEI, I'll definitely have those, those four hours. Right. So, uh, I went through that MEI curriculum and I called him back and left a message and called him back and left a message. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I think I left him three messages before I decided that he probably wasn't going to call me back. So, um, so I, I continued through the rest of the, uh, the curriculum at Pan Am, uh, finished my, I, I did my MEI first, as I think most people did there, mm-hmm. uh, went to the single engine CFI and then, uh, the instrument. And, uh, and when I finished there, uh, they, uh, you know, the, the deal was kind of the same as you, we, when you finish here at Pan Am, we will, uh, we will get you a job teaching here and uh you know you have a full load of students and you'll you'll get your time quickly so uh, i finished up and went to see the uh i think it was the assistant chief and he basically said yeah we're we're pretty uh stacked with instructors right now so we'll call you when the time comes mm-hmm. um well how long could that be and uh, and his answer was i don't know weeks months not sure. Right. Just depends on on how quickly the airlines hire our folks away. Right. So uh, you know, I kind of didn't uh, appreciate that answer very much, but you know, I needed to go find something to do. So I found um, uh, a gentleman who uh, was an aircraft broker, and uh, he needed somebody to ferry airplanes for him. Um, and uh, so I, I had a couple conversations with him, and, and uh, he offered me basically uh, daily work to come in and, and ferry airplanes for him when he needed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he didn't need it, there were a couple occasions where he'd call me in to do basic office work, you know, yeah, putting stamps on envelopes and sure. dropping them in the mailbox. But uh, I ended up ferrying a few airplanes for him um, all the while going to different flight schools uh, around uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix Metro, uh, and dropping off resumes and trying to, trying to get an instructing job. So um, it probably took three or four months before um, I walked into Tailwind. I was kind of working my way around the valley and got down to Tailwind, dropped off my resume. And as I was walking in to drop off my resume, T2 was in there, you know, saw me in my T-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops, unshaven, <laughs> and uh, said, hey, why don't you sit down and talk to me for a bit? We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this right now. Uh, completely unprepared. So if there's a lesson to be learned there, if you're going to drop off a resume, at least be presentable. <laughs> <laughs> And we were talking earlier and I was like, you know what? That's probably the reason you got hired. I mean, because I know, I know Tom, he'd be like, man, this guy's got the balls to walk in here with flip flops and t-shirt. We got to hire this guy. So yeah, you became part of the the staff, the crew there, right? Yeah, I I did. And, uh, you know, started, uh, picking up students and, and, you know, I, I loved, I loved being at Tailwind. It, It was a great environment. Um, we had some some really cool people that came in and out, uh, but uh, yeah, 
just you know the group of instructors that we were with the uh, the owners they were great um, I, I enjoyed my time there um, it was short uh, I think I was there for for four months um, yeah, same situation as before that that whole time I was putting out applications trying to trying to see who would call yeah. you know and and the rule was at that time the rule was um, you know which regional should I go work for and the answer is whichever one calls you back first. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, I got a phone call, you know, I had all that helicopter time. I didn't have a ton of fixed wing time. I, I had about 400 hours. Um, and there were some airplanes like express jet, um, wouldn't count any of it. Uh, sky West would count, count it at, uh, basically half credit. Uh, they would give you, uh, half credit up to, I think 250 hours. Hmm is what it was. Um, but, uh, I got a call from Piedmont airlines and they said, Hey, you know, we, we see your, your helicopter time here. We see you've got some airplane time here. We'd like to invite you out for an interview. Um, so, uh, they flew me out to, uh, at that time they did their interviews at their corporate headquarters in Salisbury, Maryland. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they flew me out to Salisbury and, uh, interviewed and, you know, before I left that day, I had the job. Wow. So, um, got back to, uh, to Phoenix. Uh, of course, you know, I'd, I'd kept, uh, kept the owners of Tailwind in the loop of, of what was going on mm -hmm. and, uh, got back, let them know, um, the Piedmont wanted me to start. I think it, I, I think it was less than two weeks later. So, um, you know, the, the, the owners at Tailwind were, were very happy for me. Of course, you know, they, they knew that that was everybody's goal was to, to get out and go get hired by an airline. So, um, I was able to kind of pack my stuff up and, and head out to, to Charlotte to go through uh training on the dash. Yeah. And I remember that was a turning point for me as well. Um, you had come in and within, months you already got a job and i remember going home i had a a newborn at home and my wife was working full time uh and i was working kind of part time uh and on the weekends uh opposite schedules because i was kind of a stay at home dad at that point and you got the job and you were like one of the first ones to to come in so quickly and get a job that quickly and i i went home and told julia i said uh, need to start getting my applications, you know, updated and out there because look at Terry, he, he came, he's gone already. And, and as the Squawk yeah. Ident listeners know, uh, uh, Mr. Roger, uh, Wookie, uh, who has had the privilege of being on the show a few times, he and I started going and getting, uh, interviews places and we'd fly out together. We often get the same interview date and, uh, like man and here you were in ground school uh over there at piedmont and kind of giving us the skinny of of what we can expect and and how it was and you know and i ended up at uh the airline that we refer to here as a sandpiper regional um and kind of got into it and and fortunately or unfortunately for roger he ended up taking a different path as a listeners know if you listen back to one of those episodes there with uh with roger um yeah, he's had a pretty tough time. Um, but here you were uh, flying at Piedmont, and you were not there long at all. I think you were there, you know, 
not much longer than you were at uh, at Tailwind. At Tailwind, you were there what four months, five months? Yeah, I was at Tailwind for for four months, and uh, I, I was at Piedmont for about nine months. Wow! So that that story. Yeah. So when I I got to Piedmont, started flying, and of course, you know, everybody's talking about. Um, the staffing and upgrade times because you know everyone's goal was to get to a major um and at that point in time uh, the upgrade time at piedmont was in the about the 10 to 11 year range yeah. um and when you when i when i talked to to friends who had gone to different airlines um the upgrade times were a lot shorter uh and I just thought to myself, man, I can't, I can't spend 10 years sitting in the right seat, making $25 an hour, um, and, and, you know, support my family. Um, I've got to go somewhere where I've got a chance of of moving on a little bit faster. Um, I, I wasn't completely sold on that argument until my, my last instructor from Pan Am, um, you know, he was kind of hounding me. He was over at Express Jet. And he said, hey, dude, you got to you need to come over here. Upgrade time is two to two and a half years. Come on over here. Um, You know, you'll spend two years in the right seat. By the time you finally figure out what you're doing in the right seat, it's going to be time to move on to the left seat. And uh, and, you know, four years, five years, you'll be you'll be at a major airline. I was like that. That is very enticing. Um, and, And. you know, I, so I, I kept applying once. Well, once I got the uh, enough airplane time to qualify for Express Jet's interview, because you know I still had all that helicopter time. But once I got enough airplane time to qualify for their interview, um, I went over. Uh, I I went to the interview. I had nothing to lose, so you know I was I was kind of brutally honest in the interview, and, and I told them that I'm like, hey, you know, if you guys don't hire me, I'll just go back to Piedmont and I'll continue there. Um, and I don't know if that kind of shocked them or, or what, but, you know, I, I was in class, uh, within a couple of months, um, I was still kind of on the fence about making that jump. Cause you know, it's, I had, I had a bird in the hand already. Um, and, and I was, you know, a little hesitant to, to make the jump, but, uh, then the, uh, St. Patrick's Day massacre of 2000, what was that? 2007 happened. Yeah. And, uh, it was, it was Philadelphia. Um, so, so I was based in Roanoke, Virginia with Piedmont and we got delayed one morning coming out of there. Um, we, we had an early morning show. It was like five thirty show for a six thirty takeoff. And, uh, so we're ready to take off at 6:30. There's a ground stop at Philly. Um, I think we ended up taking off around nine or, or so. So we land in Philly. Uh, as we're we're coming in uh, on the approach, the arrival ATIS is talking about uh, pellets. And uh, at that point in time, I I don't I don't remember exactly, but I I want to say that the holdover charts didn't allow for for taking off in pellets. Yeah, I think pellets was. Uh, uh, was a no-go yeah so um we knew that we were going to land we were supposed to do a quick turn we knew that wasn't going to happen um because the weather was just forecast to get worse in philly for the rest of the day 
So we got to Philly, um, and uh, we're, we're talking to our operations about you know when we're going to cancel this flight, and uh, they they refused to cancel it, um, and and basically they refused to cancel any of the flights, uh, any of the Piedmont flights that were they're supposed to go out that day. So um, you know this continued. Uh, for the rest of the day until about five o'clock, you know, we, we'd sat out, uh, the, the crew, we'd all sat out in the airplane, um, with the APU running, um, just, uh, you know, hanging out. We go check with operations every now and then we go inside and check with the gate agent every now and then. And, uh, at one point the gate agent actually came out to the airplane and she was like, what are y'all doing out here? It was, it was about 5 PM. So what are y'all doing out here? Oh, well, we're just, we're hanging out. We can't, you know, the, the, they haven't canceled us yet. She's like, what do you mean they haven't canceled you yet? The air airport is closed. Oh, okay. So we immediately got on with, with, uh, dispatch and, uh, my captain sent me inside to go try to work the process to get us some, rooms and to uh to coordinate transportation to a hotel right um and uh you know as i walked into the terminal we were kind of if you've ever been to philly i believe it's the f terminal um we were kind of far up uh in the in the uh the f terminal and uh I walked into the terminal and I looked over to my right where the rest of the terminal is. And it was like the horde of Piedmont crew members coming my direction, all doing the same thing. So, uh, you know, we all go to the, to the counter to try to get our vouchers for hotel rooms and, and transportation. And basically it was a big mess, but we ended up getting to, uh, to a hotel and, uh, I was the guy holding the voucher for the van. And uh, if if you know anything about Philadelphia and U.S. Airways, you know that the relationship between the, the citizens of Philadelphia and U.S. Airways was not a good one. Oh. Um, so I, I went to, to pay the, uh, the van driver with this voucher that's got U.S. Airways on it, and he refuses to take it. He's like, I'm not taking that. That's U.S. Airways. Yeah, I'm going to take that voucher. They're going to go bankrupt, and I'm not going to get my money. Uh-huh. Um, apparently, he'd been burned before. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I'm basically in a back and forth with him. And meanwhile, all the other hundreds of crew members are standing there in the lobby of this hotel getting hotel rooms. So I finally, I put the driver on the phone with, with our dispatch and they basically tell him, you can take the voucher and get something, or you can not take the voucher and get nothing, but nobody there is going to give you any cash. So he rips the voucher out of my hand and, uh, and takes off and I get in the line to go get a a hotel room. And I'm, I'm like one of the last two people in line. So I get up to the desk and, uh, as I, there's three of us that are, or four of us at the counter uh, trying to get a room. There are three rooms left. So two of the four of us are flight attendants. The the other FO and I, we agreed that, hey, you know, let's let's let them have rooms. 
And then we flipped a coin, he and I, and uh, I lost. So back on the phone with with scheduling to let them know that I still don't have a room. To, to make this very long story a little bit shorter, um, I ended up uh, finally getting into my room at 11 o'clock that night. Ouch. Um, remember, we had a 5.30 show that morning. Yeah. Um, so 11 o'clock that night, I get into my room. Um, after I had to walk six blocks in three inches of slush to get to this hotel because they had no way to get me to this other oh, hotel. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Oh. Um, oh. And that was that was St. Patrick's Day weekend of 2007. So at that point, you know, I was so frustrated with, with how um, that whole event had gone that I was like, you know what? I'm definitely going to Express Jet. Um, I had already gotten the job offer, so I was definitely going. And uh, and that's how I ended up over at Express Jet. So that, so that was it. That was the last nail in the coffin. That was it. Yeah. So you ended up at Express Jet uh, on a very, uh, very nice airplane. I have a an affinity for this particular aircraft, the Embraer 145. And you and I got to yeah. share a couple stories over the years when we were both flying the same airplane uh, for respective carriers. Um, and you were there, and I thought it was a pretty bold move and a smart move on on your part. You were barely even, you weren't even off probation, were you, when you decided to to go back to the U.S. Army Reserves? Uh, no, I, I was I was still on probation. In fact, the, so the, the entire time, um, actually going back to when I was in Phoenix, I was hunting for a reserve unit. I was still in the inactive reserve, mm-hmm. um, and, and I was just looking for uh, some sort of reserve or guard unit that would be willing to take me. So you know, while I was in Phoenix, I was checking with the the Air Force Reserve and the Air Guard there. Um, you know, there were a couple of uh, couple of units based out of Sky Harbor. Um, and I, I tried to, you know, the thing about the reserve and the guard is you've got to, you've got to make the contacts and, and, uh, they, they say it's like, you know, rushing a fraternity, you know, you got to go, you got to go rush uh-huh. and, uh, and get to know the people and have them get to know you. And I couldn't even get a call back to get into one of those units. And in, in fact, I, I learned that the, the KC-135 unit at uh, at Sky Harbor, um, their commander was uh, also the Civil Air Patrol Squadron commander at Deer Valley. Oh. So I started going to Civil Air Patrol meetings at Deer Valley, and this guy was always out on trips, whether it, whether it was for the, the Air Force or, or uh, for his... Uh, his airline because he flew for an airline as well. Ah. Um, so I was not able to make that connection, but I, I finally, um, while I was at, I think I was still at Piedmont when I started, uh, putting some of the pieces together to, uh, to find an army reserve, uh, fixed wing unit. Uh, and, and I found one at, uh, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So I, uh, I started talking to them. I, I went down and interviewed uh, with with them, and uh, they uh, agreed to to bring me in. And uh, so I, uh, I I got out of the inactive reserve and assigned to this reserve unit. I remember the 
my orders were dated Valentine's Day of 2007, uh, or I'm sorry, 2008. And so it was about a week later that I was driving down from Roanoke, where I was based with Piedmont. Um, I hadn't, I don't think I'd moved to Raleigh yet. Uh, um, but uh, I was driving down and uh, I get a phone call while I'm driving down and they said, uh, hey, um, we've got a, uh, uh, an available seat just popped up for the Army's um, fixed wing course. Uh, can you go? I'm like, well, when does it start? Monday. Oh. Uh, and this, this was, was on Wednesday. like a Wednesday. Oh, sorry. Not even a week, <laughs> like five days away. So uh that yeah that was that was on wednesday so I, I i said well let me check with uh with express jet and uh i called up the chief pilot's office and they said hey just send us a set of orders and uh we'll put you on mill leave so um i called the unit back said yeah no problem i can i can make that course and uh sunday i drove from from the East Coast and back down to to Fort Rucker, Alabama, to go through the Army's fixed wing course, and uh, and th- that uh, that trip that I finished, I guess it was right at the end of February, of yeah, it was 2008. That was my last airline trip ever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, never made it so, back, huh? Yes, I'm sorry. You yes, said you never made it back to the airlines. I, I never made it back. Um, yeah, so, you know, I went down to the course. I, I came back from the, so the Army's fixed wing course is three months long. I came back from the course. They put me on orders to get me uh, trained up in uh, in the unit's operations. And uh, and then I deployed in uh, right at the end of July of 2008. And which deployment, was this Iraq. your second deployment or your third? At this point, that was my second. It was your second, and you went to Iraq. And what equipment were you on? Was that the UC thirty-five? That that was uh, that was still the C twelve. The still the C twelve. So you went back in the King Air. Okay. Um, we had the uh, the King Air two hundred with the uh, the Collins Proline twenty one system in it, which is better avionics than I was used to coming out of the ERJ. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was you know three screen glass cockpit. Um, that uh i think they were lcd screens i mean it's just it was really nice really nice setup so dual fms it was great you probably can't talk Uh, really about the specifics but what exactly were you doing in theater in a c12 i mean were you transporting cargo around or people or what was your primary objective there so, so our primary mission was uh moving people around uh and and Mostly um, higher-ranking folks, uh, we call them DVs, distinguished visitors, or VIPs. Um, you know, so so generals, um, uh, general officer equivalents who who work in civil service. Um, we flew around ambassadors. We flew around mostly uh, um, higher-ranking folks. Uh, you know, when we had the uh, the opportunity or, or had a mission, we would always throw on enlisted folks if we could. Um, the, the lower ranking guys, uh, especially, you know, if, if we went someplace that, uh, you know, they were waiting to get a flight out to go on R and R, 
leave or they were waiting on a flight to get to, say, Baghdad or Kuwait so they could leave uh, leave the theater permanently. Um, you know, if we had seats available and there wasn't a uh, there wasn't a uh, distinguished visitor or VIP on board, we'd we'd throw those guys on and take them for a ride. Yeah, priority. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So um, that, that that was a that was a really good mission. We we flew some some really cool missions. Got to uh, mostly in the C twelve. It was mostly between Kuwait and Iraq, though. Okay. So you were there for how many months at that point on that deployment? Um, so, so that deployment was supposed to be a year. Um, I, uh, I left after three months due to a medical issue and, uh, um, you know, I stayed, uh, I stayed back at the unit at Fort Bragg on, on orders while I got my medical issue sorted out. And then, uh, Went back on orders shortly after that again um, to uh, to learn how to fly the the UC thirty five the Cessna Citation five hundred series. And was that uh, again in Alabama, or did you move at that point? No. So that course um, that course is actually done through flight safety. Oh. Um, so so it's a it's a five week Army course. The first three weeks is the um, it's the same curriculum that a civilian pilot would go through uh, if they went to flight safety to get a type rating and a citation ultra or citation encore. Um, so we did that three week, that first three weeks at flight safety. And then what the Army does is they add on two weeks uh, at the end where you're in the actual airplane flying around with an instructor um, just to, to get the feel of the airplane. Because... Um, you know, it, it's it's a pretty significant difference when you go from a King Air that's cruising at 200 knots to a uh, a Citation that's cruising at about 410, 420. Right. Um, so it 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 makes for for a big difference, and and guys just have to that that two weeks basically is just to get guys used to the speed of of how how much faster things happen. Right. So that uh, was quite the experience you got to. You know, you started out in an Apache, and now here you are in a UC-35 or a Citation, I think you said a 500 equivalent. Um, mm-hmm. And that took, what, about 12 years to go from commission, yeah. get your first assignment, and then 12 years later, through some very intelligent, strategic uh, chess piece moves here. I mean, you, here you are. You you know you go to one school and you're here now you're you you had applications out and this is what I I just so impressed with with your logic, your reasoning. You're you've always kind of impressed me with how you don't fall for the status quo in terms of well this you're gonna have to do this and then you have to do that and you're not. You're not sitting there going, oh, that's the way it's going to be. That's what I got to do. Here you were, you were putting applications out to, for CFI jobs before you were even a CFI. You were so far ahead of your mindset. Most people, I think, that I've talked to over the years that are in flight training or have gone through the flight training have said, yeah, man, I was concentrating on studying. I didn't have time to put apps out anywhere. I didn't think of that until I was done. I wanted to be done before I did that. And here you were always one piece ahead on this like strategy for your, your journey and your career. And you kind of have done that 
you know, throughout your journey. And here you are now flying Citation Jet um, for the U.S. Army. And you were telling me that right, pretty much right after that, didn't you get deployed yet again? Yeah, so, so I finished the, uh, the Citation course. And, uh, and then about two months, two or three months after that is when I, uh, I got deployed to Afghanistan. Um, so I said, I spent six months over there, um, in command of the, uh, the jet detachment and, uh, you know, our, our primary job, uh, was flying around again, flying around VIPs. In fact, um, funny story. If, if anyone is familiar with, um, when general Stanley McChrystal was over there and, uh, the, uh, Rolling Stone magazine did a big article on him and some mm-hmm. of the stuff that he said uh, uh, on a trip to to Paris, I think, with his staff. Um, that was uh, a lot of that. Those conversations happened on an airplane uh, that was flown by uh, the guys who we replaced. So that that mm-hmm. happened like three months before we got there. With the unit that we replaced, so um, that that's those are the types of customers that we we flew uh, over there in Afghanistan. We we flew, of course, we when General Petraeus got there um, to replace General McChrystal, he uh, he managed to finagle a Gulfstream, so uh, he got the Gulfstream, the Air Force Gulfstream guys to fly him. But uh, but we flew, you know, our our, our customers again were. Uh, two and three-star generals, um, two and three-star admirals, um, and uh, we we flew the U.S. I'm sorry, the Br- the British ambassador to NATO. Uh, um, he was a regular customer of ours, so we we got to fly some some really important people around, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, and you also at the same time were starting to get notified i believe from express jet uh, a little bit after that or was that after you came back no that that was that was after i came back in fact um you know i i, I think my my timing in in leaving uh it was very fortunate in the, the way the timing worked out uh as far as me going on military leave because it was in uh i think it was early 2009 when the uh, the big furloughs started hitting, mm-hmm. and uh, ExpressJet ended up furloughing 500 pilots, oh. and of course, you know, during a furlough, they 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 chop off, uh, they start at the bottom of the list, and so by the time they had furloughed 500 pilots, um, I was I was still on the seniority list. Hmm. Uh, but I only had seven pilots below me. Oh, so you came really so, close, yeah. Yeah. So when you're talking about a, a three thousand pilot company and they they furlough five hundred, that's pretty significant. Um, so you know, me being gone and and having a a of income and, and employment um, was very fortunate for me. Um, and you know, me being gone, I, I I don't take any credit for it, but you know, me being gone, hopefully somebody got to 
got to stay. Yeah. Because I was gone. So after that program, when you came back, uh, was that when you went into the U.S. Army Jet School instructor position? Um, it was shortly shortly after that. I, I came back. Um, I my my army boss uh, wanted me to to stay on orders, so he kept me on orders for about a year. Um, until I got offered uh, the position to go to the uh, the official name is the U.S. Army Jet Training Detachment, and uh, still at this time it's at uh, Dobbins Air Reserve Base in uh, just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, they're they're actually getting ready to move, but uh, they're still there at this time. And uh, so I got offered that position to go be the the executive officer, so the the number two in charge. Uh, there as well as be uh, an instructor in the airplane. So um, got uh, got qualified as an instructor, and uh, you know I, I kind of ran the day to day operations at a school while I was there, and I was there for two and a half years. Yeah. So after that, you uh, you had to make a decision. Uh, after seventeen years of active service, uh, ExpressJet said, well, your military leave, you've been able to extend it, and now either you come back or you forfeit your, your number. How, yeah. How did that um, decision so, sit so that, with you? That happened, uh, it, was, it was a little over a year ago. And uh, so, so every, every January 1st uh, that I was away from the airline, um, they would send me an email saying, hey, just want to verify that you're still intending on staying out on military leave. Uh, if so, just send us a copy of your orders and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put you out on military leave. So um, I think it was in sometime in the 2018 time frame where ExpressJet was purchased by a different entity. It, it, it had gone through multiple different ownerships, but uh, – it transitioned from being owned by SkyWest Holdings to being owned by some other group, uh, and and this group, um, I guess when when the management changed, um, some processes kind of changed. So they uh, again January first of 2019 or shortly thereafter, they sent me a they sent me actually they called me and left me a voicemail asking. Uh, if I was still intending on staying out on military leave. And uh, I called them back, said, yeah, I'm still going to stay out. Um, you know, here's a copy of my orders. It's the same orders that I've been sending them for three years, but hey, you know, they, they wanted another copy, so I sent yeah. it to them. And uh, after I sent, it, sent them the copy, it was, it was maybe about Two or three days later, I got a phone call, and it's from the the chief pilot in uh, in Chicago, which is where I was allegedly based, even though I'd never been there. <laughs> um, but uh, he uh, he called me, and he's like, "Hey, um, I'm looking here, and you've been gone for over ten years." Yep. He's like, "Are you intending on ever coming back?" I said. Well, if you keep me on the books, I'll come back in about three, three, three-ish years. He's like, "Yeah, I don't think we can do that." Uh -huh. <laughs> so, um, our, basically, the, the the way the rest of the conversation went was, "Hey, you can uh, 
you can send us a letter of resignation or we can administratively terminate you, which, you know, is not a, it's not anything negative. It's just, Hey, you've exceeded your, uh, your military leave available as authorized by federal law. So, um, you're, you're terminated. Um, you know, terminated always sounds bad. Um, so I, I sent him a letter of resignation said, you know, let's just, let's do this on, on clean terms, at least for me and, uh, and be done with it. So, so that just happened, uh, recently actually. Um, but you have actually had another transition that we didn't, uh, really talk much about was the transition that you made from the, the citation, uh, over to back to Rotorwing. What, what happened there? How did that process happen? So, um, I was, uh, selected to, uh, selected for command, uh, for a battalion command in the army, which is, uh, you know, a pretty big deal. Um, it, it's, you know, for a lot of, of people, it's kind of the pinnacle of the, the, uh, the army career. Um, so I was selected to, to command, um, but the uh, the units that were available were uh, helicopter units. Uh, we didn't have any fixed wing units that were available at that time. And, you know, a lot of stuff in the military is about luck and timing, and, uh, and a lot of stuff in life, for that matter. But uh, you know, the timing uh, did not work out for a fixed wing unit, nor nor did the opportunity. Um, so uh, I, you know, being selected for command is is a huge honor. Um, you know, just being entrusted with the lives of of our our young soldiers, um, you know, make decisions that will will affect their lives and their careers. Uh, it, it's a huge honor, um, and uh, it's not something you know. I had applied for it, and and to be selected was just uh, it was crazy. So, um. The, the unit that I was selected to take command of was a uh, UH-60 Blackhawk unit and uh, out of uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. So um, because it was a Blackhawk unit and I wasn't qualified in a Blackhawk, uh, I had to go, go to school again. So I uh, went to school. Uh, the Blackhawk course is uh, six weeks long. Um, because, you know, at that point, you already know how to fly a helicopter. But I'd been out of helicopters for geez, 13, 12 or 13 years. Um, but you know, it was kind of like riding a bike, um, get back on it. And, uh, and the Blackhawk is, is a great aircraft. It's, it's purpose built, you know, it's, it's built to, to take troops into battle and, and it does that exceptionally well. So took that transition, took command of the battalion and, uh, got them, uh, prepared during my command tenure, I got uh, them prepared to deploy. Uh, they deployed, uh, about six months after I changed out of command and, uh, and just got back, um, about a month ago. So, um, and and they were extremely successful in, in everything they did. So that was, that was really awesome. You know, very rewarding for me to see how successful they were, um, uh, you know, it's very rewarding to know that I, I played a part in, in getting them ready to go do that. So mm-hmm. it's really cool. And are you, uh, you're not doing the battalion command anymore. What did you transition to after that? 
So, so I changed out of battalion command and I went to work on, uh, on a general staff for about um, nine months uh, as a deputy operations officer. And then uh, uh, I, I only went for, the, for that long because I knew that I had already been selected to, uh, to attend the, uh, the U.S. Air Force War College. So that's where I am now uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, stationed at Maxwell Air Force Base, um, learning uh, about strategy and strategic leadership, and uh, should finish up in uh, in May at the end of May. And uh, then I'm not sure what happens next. Wow! So here you are, uh, 45, 43, 43, getting your second master's. You've got multiple type ratings in both rotor wing and fixed wing, continuing your service. And I've got to say, congratulations. I saw that uh, you now have a new title just recently, not long ago. And uh, what, what's that? Yeah, uh, so I got, uh, I got promoted to colonel on, uh, on January 1st. So um, pretty, uh, pretty humbling. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of funny. I was telling some of my friends, uh, that, uh, you know, in, in the military uniform, we, we have our hat that we wear and it's got a rank on the top of it. And, uh, I was telling some of my friends that I've never been intimidated by my own hat before. Um, <laughs> it, it's pretty, uh, that's great. It's, it's almost surreal, um, getting to this point because, you know, Growing up in the military, you're like, oh, the colonel, he's the old man. Now I'm the old man. Um, so uh, it's it's crazy. It, it's very, very humbling. And, uh, you know, I'm very honored to, to have made it this far in the career. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, just just hope to, to continue to do it right, you know? Yeah. Any plans for the future that you're uh, willing to indulge here today on squawk ident um i would say that uh retirement isn't terribly far away um i i i envision myself at a major airline before i turn 50 <laughs> hopefully do you still want to do it? that too but are you still interested in the uh the whole airline progression oh absolutely absolutely um, that's, you know, that, that's been my goal for, for many years. The, uh, you know, the, the reason why, uh, well, you know, the, the biggest reason why I came back into the, to the reserve was, uh, because, you know, the, the military is about people and, and you miss, when, when I was out, I missed the people that I had served with. And, and it's not any one particular person. It's just the, the people as a whole. They're, they're the ones that make this such a rewarding uh, activity. So uh, I miss the people. But, you know, there, there's, always, there's always something else. And, and the something else for me was, you know, the career progression at the regionals in, you know, 2008, 2009, uh, after ExpressJet's fortunes changed very quickly from you know two to two and a half year upgrades to uh, you better hope you still have a job yeah um so you know when when that happened my thought was well hey you know i can i can stay 
in the military. I can continue to uh, to build turbine pilot and command time uh, in the military, which I'm not anywhere close to uh, at the airline. And, uh, you know, maybe be able to get a leg up and, and get to a major airline sooner when the hiring finally starts to pick up again. Yeah. Um, oh, honestly, that didn't happen, you know. You, 2013, I had applications with United and Delta and everybody, and and uh, and nobody called. So, didn't quite work out that way. Um, but I am totally not uh, unhappy. Yeah. With the way things have turned out. You actually are very fortunate. I think you're in a very good position because in the next two to three years, the hiring blitz will definitely happen unless something major changes like a retirement age gets moved uh but the numbers are staggering i know we talk about it quite a bit here on the show with how many project projected hiring uh numbers that most of the majors have right now they're in the thousands i mean i remember when right. you said 300 pilots a year i mean oh wow that's a lot now we're talking about 1200 1300 pilots a year and that's huge. And I think if this is the road that you you do intend to go down in the next few years after retirement, um, I, I wish you all the success. I think it's not going to be uh, a problem for you to go directly to a mainline or a major uh, airline from that point. I really don't think at this point, with the experience you have, that it would be necessary for you uh, to get back into a regional level. I think your your experience speaks for itself. And Going directly to a main line is, is definitely uh, an opportunity for you. Uh, a couple questions I did want to ask you uh, before we wrap it up here today. Yeah. Uh, biggest challenge in aviation so far? Um, getting my medical back. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, there, there was nothing I could really do about that, but you know, all, all the cards were kind of stacked against me. Um, when I, you know, I mentioned that I'd gotten sick overseas and, and uh, uh, got sent home from Iraq. Um, navigating that process, I, I was fortunate enough, you know, I, I, army flight surgeons are, are good people and they, they do a great job. Um, but most of them are, are overworked and, uh, you know, don't have enough time in the day to, to get done everything they need to do as far as seeing patients and making sure that they get all their paperwork done and, and, and all of that. Um, I was fortunate enough to be a part of that unit at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, you know, flight, flight surgeons have to, uh, have to actually fly an aircraft to earn their flight pay uh, and, and maintain their status as flight surgeons. So uh, flight surgeons would come from all over and fly with us all the time because they would much rather ride in a nice plush leather seat in the back of a UC-35 than they would in a jump seat in a, in a Blackhawk. So um, much more comfortable, much more enjoyable, and, and uh, easier on the body. So we had flight surgeons from all over that would come to fly with us quite a bit, um, but the ones that, that really worked to to help me get my medical back all came out of special operations command um and there's several you know fort bragg's kind of the home of of army special operations and so their their flight surgeons would come and fly with us all the time uh, and you know they they would always tell us hey if you need anything you let us know 
and we'll come help you out. And I, I cashed in on that chip hard when I asked them to help me navigate that process. And they did it without a second thought. And, uh, you know, I, I, I fully credit them for, for saving my flying career. Because wow. um, without them, uh, I, I probably would not have been able to successfully navigate that process. So, yeah. Um, and, and that's a, a process that even here at Mainline, um, you know, I've heard stories and now our union is very, uh, adamant about expressing, um, you know, if you have a problem medically before you even go see a doctor outside of the realm of a flight doctor, you go to the union, uh, medical uh, personnel that are in charge of, helping navigate that process. So we have an advantage of having a department specifically for us. And that, that department over at our, at Legacies Union has saved the careers and the medical certificates of countless pilots that if they would have gone through the general medic, medical field to do the process that was then recommended by their, their general doctors, they could have potentially have lost their medical for forever. So right. yeah, having, having that paperwork, uh, going through the right channels, making sure that the verbiage is absolutely perfect in the paperwork so that the wrong word isn't used by a physician that then the FAA flight surgeon says, ah, oh, well, sorry. Um, so yeah, that process uh, can be very, very difficult to navigate. And it sounds like that would be anyone's biggest challenge really. Um, do you have uh, an experience that you'd like to share that, like, if you were to say, tell me about one time that you said that that's it, this is the pinnacle experience that I've had thus far in my, in my career, what would that be? Can you think of anything? Um, you know, as far as a, a pinnacle experience, I'm not sure. I, I think, um, you know, being able to um being able to, to to instruct in the UC35 as a as a commission officer what what a lot of people don't know about the army is most of our pilots are warrant officers warrant officers are the the technical and tactical experts um they are the ones who who do the the hard jobs like instructor pilot and maintenance test pilot and safety officer, tactical operations officer. They do those those hard jobs that are directly related to flying. They they learn their craft, they hone their craft and they they do a tremendous job. Um it's it's rare. It's getting a little more common, but it's it's pretty rare for a commission officer, someone in the in the uh you know, lieutenant captain major, lieutenant colonel ranks to actually be an instructor pilot. Um I got that opportunity as one of the very, very few, very lucky ones. And at one point, I was the only commission officer in the United States Army uh, that was uh, an instructor pilot on the UC-35. Wow. That only lasted for a couple of months. But, uh, but, uh, you know, I I was able to, I I could say that that I was that guy for a short period of time, which is pretty cool. But um, so, so I would say, you know that that was a pretty pretty cool experience. Just just being able to do that and to um, serve in that capacity that that very few commission officers get to do. Yeah. And have you had a favorite aircraft? 
Like if you had to pick one airplane, it's like this is my favorite, or one one helicopter, or one whatever. You know, it's it's hard for anything to beat the Apache. Um, I mean that thing that thing is a it's a flying tank. It's maneuverable. Um, it's it's an agile aircraft, and it can you know it can take the fight to the bad guys and 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 come home and and. You know, it's just a, a great aircraft. Um, that's probably been my favorite one to fly. Um, the one that I am most comfortable in is probably the UC-35. I mean, I've got, you know, I, I, I've got 20, about 23 or 2,400 hours in the Army and uh, flying hours in the Army and 13, I think, I think I'm close to 1,400 hours of that was in the UC-35. So yeah. that's that's the one I'm the most comfortable in. You know that when you when you go and you get in the airplane, it feels like you're strapping it on and you're just going to work. You know, nice. You you can you can make the airplane you want or need it to do at any time. Um, that's that's kind of the level of comfort that I got to in that aircraft. So yeah, and uh, you know you've had a pretty distinguished flying career thus far have you had any emergencies that stand out as probably some of the most challenging events um nothing terribly major you know i've had a uh a hydraulic pump malfunction um uh in in the uc35 that required us to uh we were we were going into fort knox and the runway short there so we ended up diverting over to to louisville and landing on the the long runway there um using the emergency braking capability of the aircraft um and then uh the the funny part of that story is uh, there was a, a news helicopter airborne at the time so they got video of us all the way in on the approach landing and then they they kind of hung out there as uh, as we all got off the airplane with our passengers and you know, the fire department was like, hey, everybody okay? All right, good. Let's get this airplane over the hold short line so they can open the runway back up. So we we literally all got out and pushed the airplane over the hold short line. <laughs> With your VPs uh, on board and all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> that was that was kind of funny. But that's that's probably the, the biggest emergency I've had, um, which which is, you know, in in four thousand plus hours of flying, that's pretty. Uh, I've been. I can consider myself lucky. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But then, uh, you know, there, there's, there's. I mean, we could tell stories, flying stories for days. I mean, that's that's what pilots do. But uh, yep. You know, it's. I, I can tell uh, an instructing story about how you know if you're going to be the instructor. You you need to be prepared to be the instructor. <laughs> you need to be ready because when you uh, when you're in a when you're in a straight wing jet, you rotate off the runway and you execute a simulated engine failure. You pull the engine back to idle. You better be ready for that because the airplane's gonna gonna try to point its nose a different direction than you you're trying to go. And uh, if you're not ready for that, and your student's not ready for that, it gets exciting very quickly. Right. Yeah, see, now that's the difference between flight training in a military 
background, military <laughs> environment versus flight training in a commercial airline environment. We can't do those things with people on the airplane. Right. So everything's in a simulator. Right. And obviously, you know, you're on the ground and you're, you're safe. Um, so yeah, those, and, and there was a time, uh, in the, in <laughs> probably say 30 plus years ago where flight simulators were not what they are today. And, uh, you know, the passengers would be dropped off and then that airplane stayed overnight at a, at base. And then the instructor and the, and the students for the airline would then get in that empty airplane and they'd have a flight plan and they'd go up and they would do flight training in the actual airplane, empty airplane, uh, in an area that was designated for such. And so, yeah, there was a time where you would take an airliner and, and simulate an engine emergency or V1 cut, like, you know, in the airplane. But as simulators, you know, became more and more advanced, there was absolutely no need to put the aircraft at risk, put, you know, lives of the pilots at risk. So that's gone. But sounds like you guys still kind of do that kind of training, uh, GA style. Uh, oh, you got an engine failure. What are you going to do? Uh, what's, what's your memory item? Yeah. <laughs> so we, we do. We don't, uh, we don't have any, um, the Army doesn't own any uh, UC-35 simulators. So mm. all, you know, we, we do the standard recurrent every 12 to 18 months. We'll, we'll go to flight safety and, and do our three, four days of, of academics and engine failures and mm -hmm. all that stuff in sim. But, uh, um, you know, every year, especially, you know, when, when it's time to take a check ride, it's in the airplane. Your simulated engine failures happen in the airplane. So uh, just as an instructor, you got to be ready for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we can sit here, like you said, uh, and share instructor stories. <laughs> Till we're blue in the yeah. face. Maybe another show. Maybe we'll have a show uh, just telling stories about uh, flight training. But, uh, you know, yeah. Terry, I want to just say thank you so much for spending the time with us today, uh, taking time out of your your time at home. Uh, we got to hear a little bit about with the kids in the background, and I know your wife's doing her best to, <laughs> to keep them uh, at bay. But, you know, we for those of us that have children at home, myself included, uh, uh, I know exactly. <laughs> you're uh, doing your best to keep them uh, kind of quiet while you're while you're spending time with us. And thank your wife, please, for for uh, doing the duty <laughs> of uh, trying Absolutely. to wrangle them for us. Uh, you know, and we love hearing them. By the way, Absolutely great. They sound so happy, and and I love seeing all your your photos that you you post uh, on social media there occasionally of your very beautiful family. So congratulations, congratulations, Colonel, on your uh, your new title and uh, look forward to keeping up with you and seeing your progression uh, and if you decide to you know pull the trigger and retire by all means uh, you know follow your 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 traditional path that you followed and start putting those apps out you know weeks or months in advance because that seems to have worked for you very well in your career progression uh, is there anything else uh, yeah, left that uh, you'd you'd yeah. like to uh, to have a couple final thoughts there? No, I I, I would I'd just uh, just like to say thanks to you for for having me on. It's been a good time. Um, enjoyed it. You know, it's always always fun telling war stories. Um, but uh, you know, I I've really enjoyed your podcast and and you know keeping up with it from the beginning um, and hearing all these these great stories, all these different varied journeys that people have taken to to get to where they are um has just been 
<clears throat> it's just been really cool. Um, so I, I would say, you know, continue that. Everybody's everybody's got a story. They're all they're all different. They're all unique, and uh, it, it's it's awesome hearing them. So so keep doing what you're doing. I love it. Thank you so much, and thank you for your support. You've been so supportive from the very beginning, even on those early shows, which I'm a little embarrassed about because you know I'm still growing and developing. And but you know, the other day I I stopped and listened to like my first two shows. I hadn't listened to them in months. <laughs> I was listening to them going, oh boy, uh, I've really developed. Uh, you know, I've developed and grown this show. So. That's a good thing. Uh, But thank you. It's a journey, you know? Yeah. It's a journey. It's a journey in podcasting about aviation. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please help me in saying thank you to uh, Colonel Terry Schooler for your time. Uh, Thank you, sir, for your service to our country. And thank you for just being an awesome aviator and a very humble individual. Thank you, Tony. I I appreciate it. It's been... uh, been great um thank you to everyone for for your support you know uh, i know all of us in the military appreciate the support that uh that everyone gives us and uh you know we're, we're just we're, we're thankful to serve we're happy to serve and and you know happy to to give back so ladies and gentlemen that wraps up episode 27 i want to again thank colonel schooler for taking a moment out of his time at home with his family to spend it with us here at Squawk Ident. Listening to him share his journey in aviation with us was an honor. We have more exciting and inspirational interviews coming up on Squawk Ident, so stay tuned for new episodes being released soon. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? Please visit our website at aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, OscarNovemberYankee.com. There, you can check out episode cover art, episode archives, the pilot shop. You can even leave audio feedback. And now, you can check out the Flightline photo tab, where we post photos from the Flightline over the past few decades. You can also contribute to the show and help us with equipment, software, and marketing expenses by becoming a producer of Squawk Ident, either with a one-time donation or a monthly contribution. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter users can search Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to follow us on the socials. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like what you hear, then it would be great if you could leave us a positive review and share the show with someone who you might think would enjoy Squawk Ident. In closing, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe and take care of each other.